Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, hey, my name's Stevie, if we have not met. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and uh, this point in the evening is the time that we, got, we dive into God's Word, and we, we look at Jesus, and we talk about how we can be formed to be like Him, and I just love this portion. Um, we are closing up a series, we just closed up a series in Ephesians, where we talked about new growth. So in Easter, it was Jesus is the seed who came and died, and, and now that He's died, in Scripture it talks about, unless I die... Um, there cannot be new growth. And so he talked about, I died at Easter, and now I've raised, and we dove straight into Ephesians to talk about new growth. And now we're going to be talking about, now that there is this new growth, what are we planted in? It's reminded me of when I was in college, and I was just a poor uh, college boy, um, along with a few of my other buddies, uh, one that is in here. And um, we, we just needed to make money. And so his dad hired us for his landscaping business, and we we just decided to landscape every day. We were like driving to Temecula, like Lake Elsinore. We were going far out of San Diego where it's like 128 degrees. It was the worst. You're waking up at four in the morning. I think we called ourselves the dirt boys. It was just like, who, who thinks of that? I don't know. We just thought it was a good idea. I was literally in the best shape of my life though. I was tan, I was fit. I felt so good about myself and it was honestly beautiful. Because what you do is you start off with uh, just this open dirt patch of land in Riverside. And and you're you're like, I got to make this place beautiful because it is just not. You know, I got to really work this. And so you start digging trenches and you lay in pipe and you're doing all of the work. And you start digging all these holes. And for a while, those holes just remain until it's planting day. And what I loved about planting day is we'd bring in plants that were already grown and they're in their little packaged pots and then we would cut those and we'd put it in the hole. We'd even mix up soil so that there'd be like the right pH levels for the plant and then put that in there. And it was beautiful because you saw that this was just this desolate place and now all of a sudden it's flourishing. And there's this beautiful thing, and that's the series we're now moving into. We now know what new life looks like. We know what new growth looks like, but now how are we going to plant it? What is the good soil that we are guarding? What is light church's soil? To mix up metaphors on you to a biblical metaphor in the book of Revelations, the question is, what is our lampstand? And if you're unfamiliar with that, you guys can turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Um, we just finished up our, our letter in the book of Ephesians. We're going to go to another letter to Ephesians, but in Revelation. We've read this before, but I think it just bears repeating. Revelation 2, 1 through 6, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and I and you have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent, And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. And so the question we have to then ask is, what is the lampstand 
And why did they lose it? They lost it because it says here that they forsook their first love. Christ no longer was the center and the motivator of all things that they did. But what is the lampstand? What is the thing that they lost? And to this day, as far as we're aware of, in Turkey, where this is, um, there's not a church that's alive. So they lost their lampstand. This is imagery, as Revelation does, drawing from all of the Bible. If you want to understand Revelation, which can kind of feel like really tough, to understand, I know you just like flipping there right before you go to bed and just reading some really sweet literature in, Re- in Revelation. Um, the other book that I guarantee you love going to is Leviticus. And so um, if you don't, uh, right when you're doing your Bible and your plan, this is the one you like, this is where you all fail. You get to Leviticus, you're like, I'm done. Um, but there's beautiful imagery in it. So Leviticus 24, this is the imagery that John in Revelation is drawing on. He said, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend to the lamp before the Lord from evening until morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps uh, on the pure gold lampstands before the Lord must be tended to continually. I think they're supposed to do that continually. And so what you see is there's this imagery, uh, and this is all about the tabernacle. So all of this is built out in the, in the tabernacle, and this is in the Old Testament. And if you've ever read about the tabernacle, you've probably been confused. I'm always confused. And I, I kind of like read it, and I'm like, okay, the tabernacle got to be like certain specifications, and they had to have certain tapestries with like figs and grapes, and then the lamps like had to look a certain way, and they had to use clear oil. Like what's that? Is, does God have OCD? Like, is he a neat freak? Like, what's the whole thing with God? Like, asking for all of these specifications, but here's what he's up to. The beauty of the tabernacle, the imagery of the tabernacle is all pointing back to the Garden of Eden. It's all pointing back to the time and when God's presence and humanity lived in perfect harmony, when there was no separation because of sin and because of rebellion. It was all perfection. It was wholeness. It was shalom. There was unity in relationship. And so God then sets up this little space to remind us and be the space in which God and man can meet, where we can have relationship once again. And so all of these things in the tabernacle are symbolic of the Garden of Eden. So the lampstand was designed, and so if you've seen a menorah, it's got six like branches that come out with one in the middle. It's meant to look like the tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And so that was the symbol of the lampstand. And so a few other things that we know about the lampstand that were symbolic and that they all leaned into. One is the symbol of light. Light throughout the Bible. Fire specifically always represented the presence of God. It always represented um, God's presence with Israel and then with his people. So you, you get this in the pillar of fire through, uh, through the, the wilderness. You get this through the fire that landed on Mount Sinai, the fire in the burning bush. You get this with the fire that landed in tongues of fire over people at Pentecost. It was always about God's presence. So there was, there was light, which was the presence of God. The lampstand also represented life. Again, it was the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So it was life as we were meant to live with God. And then it was love. Light, life, and love. Love meaning that we were meant to always shine our light in love and mission to others. This was originally given to Israel. Jesus then hijacked that in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you are a lamp. And if you have a lamp, you don't just cover it with a basket. Therefore, take the basket off and let your light shine 
before others. It is always about shining our light in love. And so to put it maybe in another way, it's about presence, which is light, formation, which is life of Jesus, and mission, which is love. Or to then put it in language we're really familiar with, it's to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. This is central to who we are as a church. This is the lampstand. And so it was to this end that the call to Aaron the high priest was to tend to this oil, keeping the very presence, the very formation, the very mission of God central to keep it burning. It's to this end that Revelation said to Ephesus, you've forgotten the central thing about Jesus at the center of your church. And it's to this end we're now asking the question, how do we tend to that? How do we make sure that our lamp doesn't burn out? How do we make sure that we tend to the oil? And now just one quick note on all of this is because you might have noticed that it talks about the priest is the one who's supposed to tend to the lampstand. And it's easy for us to then kind of think like, oh, it's Benji and Jen, though that's true. Them as our pastors, there's definitely a weight for them to care for this church, to tend to the lamp and the light of this church and the culture of this church. But there's something really beautiful that Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross and then through his resurrection and then through um, the, so the tearing of the veil and the Holy Spirit being sent out and filling all of his believers, 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, we are a holy nation. We are all priests. Meaning the call to tend to the culture, the call to tend to the lampstand, the call to keep the presence and the formation and the mission of God central here is not just a call for the pastors, it's a call for the people. We all as priests, as given by God, are called to tend to this lampstand. So this is a call for all of us. And so we've been praying, we've just been talking about what are some of the things that are unique about Light Church? What are some of the things that we feel like this is our light? This is the way that we express presence, formation, and mission. And so a few things that we came up with today, I'm just going to talk about community and contribution. Next week, they'll talk about communion and conviction. And the week after that, we're going to talk about creativity and compassion. So those are things that we think are distinctive of who we are. Um, we are not in, com uh, in any comparison or anything like that with other churches. We are all on the same team for the same kingdom. This is just our unique expression. So to start community, we wanna be a place of community. We wanna be a space where people can come in and you are known. We wanna be a thick web of diverse relationships where Jesus is at the center and we find our belonging and ultimately we are shaped together to be and look more like Jesus. That's our goal. In 1831, the French diplomat Tocqueville, he went on a tour through America and after visiting and assessing our country, this was his conclusion. Extremist individualism is the defining American trait, and if left unchecked, it would spell the abolition of humanity. That's like a bit extreme, the abolition of humanity. This is America, baby. We do what we want. This French diplomat doesn't know what he's talking about. But I actually think what Tocqueville was hitting on in the 1830s has proven to unfold as true. We've seen the cracks, we've seen the crumbles of humanity, particularly in America, in radical ways. And I think what he's getting at, the truth that he spoke, I think is as old as the first pages of scripture. Genesis 2:18. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. The only thing in all of his good creation, after he built and, and created all these things, he said, it's not good for them to be alone. Loneliness, 
something that each and every one of us have felt or we do feel, something that we all know too well, whether isolated in your room or in your cubicle or in your marriage or in a crowded room, even like this. It's this dragging feeling that taints every moment with this deep sense of dissatisfaction because you are always carrying this sneaking suspicion that people don't know you, they don't love you, they don't care about you, they don't understand. And even if they try, it still won't satisfy that chronic ache of your heart loneliness. The cause is hyper-individualism and the call is community and contribution. So what is community? Well, the biblical word for it is koinonia. It can be translated community or fellowship or partnership or sharing in common. Merriam-Webster defines it as people with common interests living in a particular area. I have a really good friend of mine. He was um, in my wedding and he lives in Long Beach. We call each other, we're on the phones, but we're friends. Uh, We'll even confide in each other. We're in each other's lives. Um, He knows so much about me and I know so much about him. But I'm really mindful to not say that he's my community. He's one of my best friends. I call him. We chat. I'm there for him. He's there for me. We make uh, an intentional effort to go out of our way for each other. But the reality is, is we don't live by each other. And if I need someone in a moment, if, if I need to be shaped in the day in and day out, he's not my community. He's my friend. And so community is something different. It is a common interest in a particular area, which is why the gym actually is community, why school can be community, parenting can be community, fantasy football season is underway. That is community. Surfing is a community, and tiny people with hairy feet carrying a ring to a volcano is community. I love like the late laughs. Sam, I appreciate you so much. Um, These are all forms of community and fellowship for sure. I think those are all beautiful. They all are impactful. They all kind of satisfy something that we do need. But I think these forms of community actually fall short of what Jesus has in mind, which is this diverse group of people who would have no reason to be in relationship. And we're all being formed into people of love. And by extension, we are partnering with God in his work in the world, which is on earth as it is in heaven. We would have no reason to be in the same room. We would have no reason to sit across the table. We would have no reason to cross paths except for Jesus at the center. In that community, as messy and as broken and as difficult as it may be, has to have Jesus at the center as the only common interest that actually matters in that community is called the church. And when I say church, I don't mean light as like an organization or anything like that. I mean church as an intentional gathering of people who love Jesus and are together to worship Jesus and be formed by him. But if you have been to any church, any church at all, you've been to any, any number of Sundays, you've been to open tables, you've been to small groups, you've, you've given yourself deeply to community, you've leaned into it, you know that the best part, as well as the worst part of church, is people. Other people. Who act differently, who think differently, who are really broken. They talk too loud, they talk too quiet, they smell funny, they're inconsistent, they have baggage, they're, they think that they're right all the time. No matter what, you fill in the blank, it is hard. So I think there are a few things that make community hard, and I wanna walk through those, and I wanna talk about Jesus' radical counter community. So I think a few things that make community hard one is individualism, 
Two is idealism. And three is intimidation. So to start individualism, we've already talked about this, but David Brooks in his book, uh, The Second Mountain, he says that we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There's always a tension between the self and the society, but over the past 60 years, we have swung too far towards self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people towards relationships, towards community and commitment. The thing that we most deeply yearn for yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. So the reality is all of us, we ache for this sense of being known. We ache for intimacy and relationship. We ache for that. And yet because of the way that we think and the ways that we live in this hyper-individualistic culture, it is actually impossible. Individualism calls us or we find ourselves surrounded in individualism by tons of people, and yet we find ourselves completely lonely. Here's some statistics. 35% of Americans report that they are chronically lonely. 8% report that they have had a conversation with a neighbor in the previous year. In 1984, so 40 years ago, the average American had three confidants, three people they could call and confide in. But recent reports say that 25% have zero people to call and confide in. The former Surgeon General, Dr. Rebecca Murphy, in an article for the Harvard Business Review said that during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw wasn't heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Loneliness. Loneliness has tons of different problems. One study says that it's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, that doesn't justify you smoking 15 cigarettes a day because you're in community. Don't do that. Uh, it doesn't make it right, right? It says that you, uh, it affects your lifespan, it affects obesity, it gives you heart disease, dementia, anxiety, depression, all these things. But as, aside from maybe just some of the mental and physical unhealth that we experience because of loneliness, it's also really detrimental to a society. Ironically, individualism and loneliness leads to tribalism. David Brooks calls tribalism the dark twin of community. You see, if community is built on mutual love, tribalism is built on mutual hate. If community is built on what we are for, tribalism is built on what we are against. Community is about generosity and honor and celebration of the other and our differences. Tribalism is a battle over scarce resources. Community puts the solitary in a family, but individualism sets the lonely into tribes. Finally, David Brooks says, the tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals it sought to free. So without spending more time depressing you with something that we all know too well, let's turn to Jesus. And let's look at his radical alternative way of life. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed 
him. So what we notice immediately from Jesus, his invitation into relationship with him was that he calls disciples, plural. Very early on in the life of Jesus, we see that to follow Jesus is actually to live in community. Jesus never calls people into relationship with him without simultaneously calling us into relationship with others. There's not even a single story throughout the Bible of Jesus inviting someone to follow him when they are not brought into a new family as well. It seems that to follow Jesus is to find yourself in community. Now, I think that you can be a follower of Jesus and be fully isolated from community. I think that that's a way. But I think what Jesus is actually after, the the life change, your heart, giving you life, the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, making you look more like him, you cannot have that without community. So this leads us to the second hang-up that makes community hard, which is idealism. Oftentimes, I think we have difficulty with community because whether we're conscious of it or not, we come with a set of expectations and ideals for the community to live up to. Benji mentioned this in his sermon yesterday. There's this man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you are familiar, who was in Nazi Germany, and he set up this like little monastic community called Finkenwald. And he wrote about it in his book called Life Together. And here's one thing he said about community. He said, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God and by others and by self. He enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law and he judges the brethren, God and himself accordingly. Now, I want to say a caveat. Expectations aren't bad. I mean, it's, it's right for us to have expectations. You should expect to hear Jesus. You should expect us to open the Bible. Expectations are good. We're, this series literally is us saying, here's what we expect to be as a church. But I think what this is more about is what happens, and we see this a lot as I do premarital and marriages, is we tend to enter with these unrealistic, idyllic expectations of perfection, of ease, and of comfort. And we don't Uh, And we don't do this more like down-to-earth, realistic, and honest assessment of what life with another is actually like. So we can come in with this heart posture of demand rather than grateful reception. And it's so easy when we do that to destroy what is with idealistic intention. And I've seen the carnage. I've seen marriages falling apart. I've seen friendships that no longer talk to each other and so, so often I've talked with people who have church hurt and who have walked away because they have a curated image of this perfect scenario. And when it gets hard, when it doesn't live up to the standard, and ultimately when it lets us down, we bail. Now, I also want to say another caveat. There are actual legitimate reasons why people should leave a church. That's not what I'm talking about here. Um, But if a church situation moves from, man, they just let me down, to there was actual situations of unhealth and abuse. And if there's a case when Jesus has truly left the center, when tribalism has ensued, and when there's deep, deep wounding and straight-up abuse of power, it's worth assessing with a trusted, Christ-following 
friend to pray about what it might look like to lead. So I'm not talking about, I understand church hurt is real. And that's not what I'm trying to gloss over. So if that's you, I just want you to know, we have a, we have a crucified savior who when he opened up with vulnerability, when he was honest and authentically God, in his most vulnerable state, he was rejected. So he really understands what it's like to walk through hurt from people who weren't supposed to. So I just wanna say that there's empathy for you and there's grace for you. That's not exactly what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the music's too loud. I'm talking about this pastor's talking for too long. I'm talking about that person, I just don't like their personality. Those kind of things that, that I mean, some of them are very real, but some of them can be trivial. And so what we can do is we can come in with our expectations. And as we do that, we can actually break the community that we want to love and be a part of so much. And here's what I actually think. I think that a community that has blemishes, I think a community that has tensions, a community that has broken people filling the seats, a community that you have to fumble through scenarios and you need to really pray about it because you really just don't know what to do with them. I think a community like that to Jesus is a perfect community. If you find a community without any blemishes, any cracks, don't join because you're going to ruin it. You're going to be the problem. There is no perfect community. And I think that the reason for this, and we're going to dive into this, is because the end goal of community for Jesus is formation. It's not comfort. It's for you being shaped to become more like Jesus, for you in the school of love, which is called community, to be formed to become a person of love, where, where it's not just something that you have to force yourself to do, it's something you do. You just love people because you see the image of God in them, because you realize that God loves them and you want to step in the same footsteps as him. We become, to, we become people of love who, who can extend love towards others and see people in their brokenness and meet them and serve their needs. We get to become like Jesus, and it only happens in community. So for Jesus, this is what community looks like, Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, as Jesus continues, we now notice who he is calling into community. For Jesus, it seems like he's walking around and picking out the broken, needy people. He's walking around and he's, he's looking for people who recognize their need, which means sitting right next to you right now is a needy person. Yeah, you're leaning on a really needy person. And needy people bring their needs, which is uncomfortable because then all of a sudden you're not just worrying about yourself anymore, you're worrying about another person, you're carrying their burdens. To be in Jesus's community, the bar of requirement wasn't perfection. 
It wasn't your healthiness. It wasn't your prayer life. It was your commitment to following Jesus, which happened in community. It wasn't your current level of maturity, which also highlights another thing. For Jesus, his community will have people who have been following God for a really long time. They know all of the things. Their prayers are really eloquent. They know like the Bible front and back. They've done the Bible in the year plan for 30 years. People like James, John, and Peter. And in Jesus' community, there will be people who know basically nothing people who have lived a wild life, people who don't know the language of church, people who cuss a lot in their prayers, love it. People like Matthew, who was on the payroll of Rome. People like Judas Iscariot, who was a part of this radical group called the Daggers, who would attack Roman soldiers violently, and he later betrayed Jesus. See, for Jesus in his community, he realized there'd be a diverse spectrum of maturity, and he welcomed it. Wherever you are tonight, whether you don't even know who Jesus is, you've got a past in history, you might be walking with shame, or you've been here and you're like, I've been doing this for longer than you've been alive, Stevie. I'm glad you're here. Jesus is glad that you're here. This is the community he came to build. So turn your Bible, uh, turn your Bible one more page to the right, Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and Sickness, And then he goes on to list the 12. I'm not going to go over all the names, but notice Jesus had 12 disciples, which was just a, a small nucleus of a, of a greater group of people. These were the 12 that he like really invested in. And even within the 12, he had three. He had James, John, and Peter that he spent even more time with. But notice he shared with them. He lived life with them. He gave them authority and he did everything with them. He goes on to list the 12, and I don't have time to get into each person, but this is a very unidealistic group of misfits to start a church. Like this would have been so problematic for Jesus. He, he pulled these people who he knew were gonna have conflicts. Dinner would have been super awkward for them. This would have had conflicts and tensions and misunderstanding. And again, I think for Jesus, that was the point. Why did Jesus want to start his church with people who were absolutely different, people who were totally diverse, people who weren't gonna see eye to eye? Well, I think because he knew that he needed to massage into their souls the ability to love others as he has loved us before they can actually go out and be his disciples and be his light into the world. And maybe God wants to do the same for you and for me. I think Jesus actually knows a lot more than we do. I think Jesus... His desire for your life is so much more than your desire is for your life. And his desire for this community, it's more than even what your desire for this community could have ever been. He doesn't just desire for you to come in here and have a bunch of friends, though that's cool. And that is a part of community. But it seems to me, Jesus in this group is actually after your formation. He's actually after making you look beautiful. He's after those areas that maybe you've walled off and you say, I'm not gonna to touch that. He's after that area of addiction. He's after that area where you just continue to blow up and you don't know why and that trigger and that wound. He's after all of those things because he wants to heal you so that you can live as a loving, beautiful person and you can express his love to the world around you. Again, this only happens in community. I think we often mistake community for connectivity which is why you can have hundreds, if not thousands of followers on Instagram, like their photo and just keep scrolling and think that you guys are connected. 
and yet you still walk around with low-grade to high-grade depression and loneliness. They're not the same. We can also often mistake community for chemistry. We all love, you know, being connected with people. We all love that neurobiological spark that happens when we start talking about surfing and coffee and the Padres. It's all fun. We can hang out and be good friends, but the reality is, is for connected people and chemistry people, that doesn't mean that there's gonna be real life shape. It doesn't mean that they're actually gonna call you out on your stuff or call you up to a standard that Jesus has for you. It doesn't mean that, that you're gonna to confess to them and talk to them about that really painful part of your life and that they're going to say, hey, I wanna walk with you in that. And in fact, the people with chemistry, they're probably so much like you that they're not gonna shape you to become any different. Formation into people of love necessarily requires that we learn to love others that are different than us. This is what Jesus does. It doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, but if you've experienced it, you get it. How can you sit across the table from someone who has a complete different political ideology than you? Jesus. How can you give your time and, and listen to and pray for that person who you know how bad they just messed up, Jesus? How can you care and have the capacity and interest to give the time of day to that person who's just 180 degrees different than you in terms of job and interest and personality and ways of thinking? Jesus. Well, and why? Why would you offer your time? Why would you offer your resources and your care for that person who you have no biological ties to and they are never gonna pay you back for everything you've done for them? Yeah, Jesus. It's in a community of diversity unity with Christ at the center where we are contributing members that are ache for what we were created for, which is being known and loved by another and being loved by Jesus is found. And we all look more like Jesus because of it. Which leads to the final and most honest and I think probably the most felt reason why community is hard, which is intimidation. If we're all honest, community is scary. It's not about introversion or extroversion. They have nothing to do with how relational someone is. It might make question of the day produce a lot of anxiety. So if you felt that, congrats, you're an introvert. Doesn't mean you're not relational. It says nothing about how you can value and be vulnerable within relationships. But the reality is, is we are scared because we all know at some gut level, it's intuitive to us that in a space of community, our real self is laid bare. We're exposed and there is nowhere to hide. Who we actually are, as well as who we're not, our gifts, as well as our limits, and where we fall short, we're confronted with them. All of our flaws, our limitations, our issues, our habits, our bandwidth, our personality, it all comes out in community with no filter for better or for worse. In this strange conspiracy of grace, which is at the heart of the mystery of the gospel, we are not just at our best, but we are at our worst with the people we love the most. If you were to hide a camera on me and follow me around for this entire next week, 24-7, which is illegal, by the way, don't do that. What you would realize is the moments in my life where you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe my pastor said that. Or, man, in that argument, why did he distance himself? Or why, why would he do that? Those moments that you would be like, dang, you see my real self, it would most likely be in the context of my relationship with my wife or my family. Because the people that I love the most, I'm the safest with. My real self comes out. I'm at my best and I'm at my worst 
when I'm with the people I love, and my assumption is you are the same. We're scared of intimacy because we know who we actually are, and we're afraid that that will come out with no filter. What's going to happen? Will people still love me? Will they stick around? Will I be ashamed because I'm not the person that I want to be yet? But this, recognizing our limitations, recognizing our flaws, and then in contribution, bringing our gift. What, what, it, what it means to be in community is you bring your gifts and you bring your strengths as well as your flaws. You bring your whole self vulnerably, and that's how community happens. This is how we become people of love. When we mess up and our friends, our community call us up, we repent, we say we're sorry, we come back to the center on Jesus, and then we realize that we that's not who we want to be. And we say, thankfully, in humility, Jesus, you still have work to do, and I'm still on the journey. And they do too, and you do too, and you do too. This is not a church of perfect people. This is a church of people who are on the journey. And if we can all recognize that, all of a sudden we can walk with grace and compassion and accountability as well as vulnerability. Those are the two elements we need for community. Vulnerability and accountability. The word community shares its root with the word communication, which means as we communicate face-to-face and we bear our souls to each other, this is community. M. Scott Peck says, there can be no vulnerability without risk, and there can be no community without vulnerability, which means community takes risk, but is dangerous because you might get hurt. You might open up and experience rejection or criticism. You might encounter a person who's always just trying to fix you. Or like on that last keto diet that you tried to go on to and you started eating like tacos and burritos the next day and your friend says, I thought you were on keto. And they tried keeping you accountable and you hated that so much. We do the same thing when it comes to Jesus. Ah, oh, man, I really wanted to start reading my Bible more. I really want to, I want to lean into the practice. I want to like take Sabbath really seriously. I don't want to talk that way to my wife anymore. I really want to like be present with my kids. And once you say that and you vocalize that to community, now you're accountable. We don't like accountability because what if I change my mind? What if I do want to talk to my, 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 my wife like that? What if I don't take my Sabbath serious and then you call me out on it? I'm not going to lie. It doesn't feel cozy. So the reality is, is we need both to mature. If all you have is vulnerability, but there is no accountability, no one to call you out to a higher standard or hold you to it, there is no change. You become venting session with no transformation. But if there's accountability with no vulnerability, we become selective in what we share. We don't actually bring those deep wounds, and because we don't do that, there is no change. Our community becomes legalistic, and it runs on rules. And no one's actually sharing their brokenness and being cared for, and there is no grace. This is actually why at the center point of Jesus, it's not the stage, it's not even his teaching, it's the table. Jesus was always eating. We just read a passage where he was eating. He's either eating or he's going to a meal or he's coming from a meal or he's multiplying a meal or he's partying at a meal. I mean, Jesus ate so much so people thought that he was a glutton was the word that they used. Jesus knew how to have a good time with food. Today, I guarantee you California burritos would be on top of his list. Like Jesus crushed burritos. And I love that about Jesus. But I think there's something that's to that. Jesus realized that at the table, this is where it's intimate. 
The table is where you have conversation. It's when you look at the person across from you, and as you do that, you're bearing your soul, you're confessing to one another, and you come with the same needs. And at the very base level, the base level need that you come with is the fact that we all need to eat. That's like my favorite mantra. We all, everyone's gotta eat. And I think that that's so beautiful because it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic background you come from. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter what part of San Diego or if you're from Riverside. It doesn't matter because everybody has to eat. It does not discriminate. And so as you sit across from the table, you can sit across from someone absolutely different than you and diverse than you and find unity in the fact that we have the same need. Let's start there. And so Jesus starts at that base level need that we all share in common. And then from there, he says, we also have a need for people. And at the table, this is where it happens. This is actually why I think the greatest um, that kind of picture of what happens like this in our culture is Alcoholics Anonymous. It started as a community group, an accountability group that was in Ohio, and they followed Jesus. They loved Sundays, but it just wasn't enough for the change that they needed. And so they started a group of people that would confess and keep accountability. And it is the best shaping thing that we see in our culture to this day. This is what we need. And if alcohol isn't the thing that you need to confess, and if it is, you know, you should lean into that. But what we need, what we see in AA is vulnerability and accountability. It is in that space that we become people of love. Our greatest place of healing is going to be found in vulnerability. It's going to be found in community. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the next part, which is contribution, because I think contribution is a bit what I I talked about. You cannot have community unless you bring your whole self. You cannot see the flourishing of a community unless you say, I'm going to invest myself into this with my time and my talent and my resources and my, my flaws and my gifts. I'm going to invest myself completely into it. That's what contribution is. And we were made for contribution. Read chapter 2 of Genesis. and It says that God made us to work the ground. That word work it is the word abad in, in Hebrew. And, and that means to cultivate, to create something beautiful. Tim Keller talks about how it's taking the raw materials of the world and using it for goodness and beauty. That's what we're called to do. That's why when you do something that you love, when you see these people shredding it on the guitars up here and they've got that like goofy grin on their face, or when you do that one thing that you know, you're like, man, I was just made to do this. And you're adding value into something. Or when you serve and you get like a really nice thank you, that just brings a sense of like deeper delight inside of your heart. It's because you were made for that. We were made to contribute. We weren't made to sit back and be lazy. And actually, as we do that, we feel more lonely, more isolated. We feel less life. But as we step in and contribute, life happens. Just one passage in Matthew 20. Jesus is talking to his disciples right after a dispute. And it was a great dispute where the mom got involved. And I love it. But we're gonna go to Verse 25, he says that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, that their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If we want to be shaped to become like Jesus, we give ourselves to the community. And this is, please hear me, this is not a coercive way of saying, we really need you to serve in kids' ministry, though we do need that. This is just to say, if, if you guys 
do want to find spaces. So yeah, I will say, if you want to serve in kids' ministry, you should do that. Um, because, because we have opportunities. <laughs> I will caveat, I promise. Um, I really want you to hear that this is, this is not us to at all in any way get like a light church agenda across. This is just a way of saying, is there a simple invitation for you to say, Jesus, I want to be formed. I want to step into contribution. It doesn't even need to be here. How are you contributing at your work? How are you contributing with your neighbor? How are you loving them really well? If, if you're just someone who types you know, numbers into Excel sheets, how are you doing that really well? If you're someone who's a project manager and you oversee a team of people, how are you intentionally caring for and leading that team? Um, Because in Colossians, it talks about do all as if God is your boss. Do everything for the glory of God. And so how do we just do everything that we do, the mundane work, maybe the, the work that you really hate and you're like, why am I even doing this? This isn't worship. Well, if you do it really well and you do it with a heart of love, you do it guided by scripture, you do it in a way that is honorable as if God is your boss, it's worship. That's what I talk about. How do you contribute to the growth of the world, the bringing of beauty and shalom to the world? And if you want to do that here, you can do that in kids' ministry. Um, You can do that on the greeting team. We really would love to offer opportunities for you to step in and serve. But the other thing that I really wanted to talk about as well is open tables. Um, I don't think open tables are the way. Truly, I, I, think, I think open tables are an opportunity. I think it's an, it's an opportunity for you to say, I just want community and I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by, by risking. And, I, and I, what I wanna say is I think that Jesus is gonna invite you specifically into whatever your next step is. Because if you're coming in with tons of timidity because you do have church wounds, that is so valid and we wanna sit with you and walk with you graciously there. The invitation for you might not be join like an accountability group where you say, this is how I did last night and like keep me accountable. That might be really scary because if you come with that kind of vulnerability where you've been broken and hurt in the past because someone took that vulnerability and squashed it or told other people about it, that's not safe. So you need to learn how to be safe in community. You need to learn that people can be safe. And so maybe that next step for you is join a surfing open table and enjoy just being around people and then build relationship and that will take you deeper. I actually don't think open tables are the end goal. I think open tables are the way to the end goal. In open tables, we're shaped by others, but ultimately we find like three to five people who we really bear our souls with, that we really invite into the deep muck of our life and we say, could you walk with me? Could you pray with me? Can I call you if something's going on late at night? Can we watch each other's kids? Like, can we do life together? And I think that's where the deepest formation happens. I think open table is for sure a step in that direction. And I do think that we should all be in there. And so I wanna invite you into community. I wanna invite you into contribution. I actually think Jesus wants to invite you into community and contribution. And I feel pretty confident saying that he wants that because it's in scripture. And so the call for us is would we take a risk? Would we step in? Would we tend to this lampstand? Would we say, this is who we are as a church. We are a church that brings the lonely, not into tribes, but into a community of love. We are people that will sit across from other diverse people who we don't have anything in common, but Jesus is at the center. And this makes sense because God is good. We wanna be a church that our light is shining in such a way that the rest of the world would say, why are you doing that? And we would say, because we have a God who served us and loved us when we didn't deserve. 
And now he's filled us with his spirit. He's empowered us to go and do the same. If we want to see shalom and beauty and Eden and goodness happen in our world, it's going to happen by us stepping in with Christ at the center, loving those that are different than us. Can we be a diverse community? Can we be a community that loves others really well and serves others, even though it's kind of hard? Can we commit to that? San Diegans don't like to commit. I don't like to commit. But commitment is something that we need if we want community to work. Because if I'm trusting you, I need to know that you're committed to that. And so can we be a committal people? Now I'm ranting, those are all invitations. Let's pray. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up and I'd love just to pray over us as we, as we land and we just ask the Lord, what's that next invitation for us? And so. God, we just, um, we just invite you right now. Would you begin just to speak to us individually? God, would you highlight in our mind and in our hearts, maybe, maybe would you highlight those areas of rub that we experience? Those areas in our lives when we actually realize those are the moments that we experience loneliness or that's, that's the moment that I begin to move into that habitual pattern or that's the moment I'm tempted to blow up and that's the moment that I kind of disengage... God, would you help us with grace and with compassion ourselves, but not with judgment? Would you help us just to notice those areas? And Lord, would your spirit just gently invite us into a moment right there? What's what's the invitation in that moment of loneliness? What's the invitation? What's the next step in that moment, that trigger? What's the invitation when we have that habitual or addictive behavior? What are you inviting us into, Lord? Lord, I, I just, I know how scary, um, how intimidating community can be. I personally am intimidated by it. But God, I see, I see your call in scripture. I see the fact that it is actually the way. It's, it's the school of love in which I'm gonna be shaped. And, and so Lord, I just pray for confidence. I pray for courage over everyone right now. I pray that everyone here, um, that you would, you would help them have the, the strength and the courage to take that next step, however big or however small. Would you give them courage to take that risk? And Lord, I pray you protect our community, that you'd protect us um, from the moments that we do get vulnerable, the moments that we do risk. Would you protect us from that being squashed? But Lord, I pray you breathe on those moments and that you actually make those moments flourish and safe and beautiful so that we can learn to trust again. And Lord, I pray that we start with you. Would you help us to trust you first? Would you help us to bring all of ourselves, the broken, the good, the bad, the ugly, the blemishes, our, our maybe the ways that we have tensions with other people, the ways that we're upset with others. Can we bring that to you, God? Would you help us just to realize how safe you are? God, I pray for healing over those that have church wounds, those who have fears of vulnerability. Would you just heal them right now? Wounded, crucified, and sacrificed Savior. Would you draw near to the brokenhearted? Would you provide empathy and compassion for them? So Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? And Lord, would you make us a diverse, beautiful community with you at the center? Would our lampstand shine so bright, God, because your presence is here? Would we be so formed to look like you? And would our mission be so outward focused that the world watching could not help but ask what's different? And our only answer is you, Jesus. 
We love you, Lord. Would you fill this space? Would you fill our lives? And would you send us out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys mind standing as we just worship God as we end? Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.